You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Our passage for today is Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And it goes like this. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking the hands of sinners? Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Great to to be with you. To uh, our guests and newcomers, let me just give uh, an added welcome to you. We're really thankful that you're joining us here this morning at New City. And if we've not had the chance to meet before, my name is Will, and it's uh, my joy to be able to look at this really, really sacred, all of Scripture is sacred. Uh, There are just moments where we see Jesus perhaps uh, uh, especially clearly, and uh, what we're looking at this morning and what we'll look at next week, I think, will help articulate that. Um, Easter's coming up, and uh, I hope all of us, and I would even issue this welcome to newcomers and visitors, Hang with us for a few weeks because uh, we're going to look at some of the events leading up to Easter. We're going to have the easiest Easter egg hunt you can imagine outside. We're just going to throw them on the grass out here, right out, right out to my right. And uh, that's just for kids, Rachel. Okay, so, uh, uh, but you can help hide them and maybe they'll give you a tip of some uh, candy at the end. But uh, that'll be on the, the Saturday before Easter. And then, of course, we'll celebrate here on Easter Sunday with uh, our, our time of worship together and baptisms. But I, I do think just even if you're like maybe outside of the church, you're, you're maybe new to Christianity, these next few weeks are at the heart, at the absolute core of what we believe as Christians. And so I just invite you to join us on that journey together. Um, I'm hopeful that our time of Easter is going to be a great time of joy and celebration for us as a church. But the only way that we can truly experience the the joy and the celebration of Easter is if we first enter into the pain and the anguish of the events leading into Easter. Uh, These next couple weeks, it's it's like joyful in here this morning. The the sun is shining outside and you guys are clapping and it's it's beautiful. And I don't mean to change the mood, but we are over these next couple weeks going to be entering into really the actually the darkest hours of human history. 
the, the darkest hours of human history we're going to be looking at together. And I'm not bringing us there for doom and gloom or to change the mood of the room. We're going to go to this dark hour for, for this predominant reason. Here, here's the predominant reason I want us to look at the dark hours of Jesus' suffering and death more deeply how much God loves you. I want you to understand in deeper ways than you ever have before how much God loves you. There's a a book that I recently read that I feel like this illustration is helpful to describe God's love for you. It described God's love as like an ocean that has no shores, no bottom, but also no surface. Uh, It is is uh, boundless. Uh, It can't be measured. Uh, it, it can't be summarized, but if we were going to describe God's love for you in the clearest terms possible, the last moments of Jesus's life and his cross would be the best possible place to describe his love for you. When you understand what Jesus was willing to undergo for you, to redeem you, to rescue your soul uh, so that you might be his forever, uh, the, 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 weight he, the, the, the lengths he was willing to go for you, uh, the chapters we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks are the best possible place to describe that. And so I just want to invite you to pray with me uh, right now that, that God would reveal just that in the sufferings of Jesus, God's incredible love for you would be revealed. So pray, pray with me as we get ready to journey into this passage. Lord, I even echo the Apostle Paul and just pray over New City Fellowship and guests and visitors in this room, even the children down the hall. I pray that you might grant to us the inner strength, the spiritual strength to comprehend the incomprehensible. I pray that you would give us the spiritual strength to comprehend the love of Christ that surpasses understanding. I pray that we would know the height, the length, the breadth, and the width of God's love expressed for us through what Jesus... God, help us in Jesus' agony and Jesus' sufferings um, to understand your immense love for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is in our, our culture great interest, great obsession with trying to understand our true selves. Uh, who are we really? Uh, what, what is our true self? If we just pull back kind of uh, what maybe society tells about us at our core, who, who are we really? And that, that brings me to this question. What is the best place for you to get an accurate understanding of yourself? knowing who you truly are, discovering what you are really made of. Like, what's the best place to look? I think the problem with how we might be tempted to answer that question is we usually make judgments of ourselves under the best conditions. So who's the real me? The real me is the person you see when the sun is shining and the coffee is brewed, and the kids aren't screaming, and uh, like life is generally working well, life is fulfilling, uh, there's just general happiness. The person you see on that day, that's the real me. When things are not going my way, when I'm hungry, tired, irritated, unfulfilled, under some kind of deadline or stress, that's the aberration. That's, that's, uh, you know, that, that's not the true picture of myself. But I, I think if we were honest about the Bible, the Bible would actually say the opposite is true. 
the, the true you, the, the, the real you, is not the person we see when everything is going swimmingly. The, the real you, the, the you that, that's underneath the surface, is the person that's revealed when life is simply not going your way, when you are under a great deal of pressure. You want to see your real self. And honestly, if you want to see your real need of, of Jesus, your real need of redemption, look at yourself in your worst moments, not, not your best moments. Um, to add to this, a, a 16th century Puritan puts it in language maybe some of you will appreciate uh, heart, which is, as it were, so near the surface, they are ready on every turn to rise up. So these are like the obvious sins in our life. But he says there are others also which lie so very deep they are scarcely observed at all. But as the fire under the pot makes the dross and junk, he doesn't say junk, that's a modern term, but rise to the top and and run over, so the trials in our lives rise up from the bottom and bring out such corruptions as one would, uh, could hardly imagine to be there within. What is this... uh, 400-year-old uh, writing saying, uh, there, there are things within us that, that are revealed when we find ourselves under heat, under difficulty, under pressure. Pressure reveals who we really are. And if we're honest, the person that pressure reveals is not usually very pretty. Why do I bring this up? The reason I bring this up is because this morning we're in Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means olive press. It's not just any garden that Jesus is in. He is in an olive garden. This garden is right outside of Jerusalem. Uh, It's most likely where the olives that uh, would be grown to to produce oil for like the lamps in the temple, Uh, the city of Jerusalem right next to it, that's where the olives are coming from. But in order to get that that olive oil for, for these different uses, there would have to be applied immense pressure, weight, force, So he would take the olives off the tree, put them in a concrete press, and with immense weight and pressure, the the olive oil would run out. This is, of course, quite um, a picture of what our Savior is going through in this moment. He is uh, leaving the Last Supper with his disciples. Uh, He goes into uh, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, and even the illustrations that are given of him sweating blood is is a demonstration just like the weight on those olives would would press on them. So Jesus is coming under this weight, having uh, the weight of the world press on to see his garden is all about pressure. But what we get to see is Jesus under pressure. We, we've seen him, if you've read the gospel accounts, we've seen Jesus under, at different times, moder, moderately, at least compared to this, good, good circumstances, and we've seen what kind of man he is. What kind of man is Jesus when the weight of the world falls on his back? That's what the Garden of Gethsemane reveals to us this morning. And so what I want to do this morning is walk through Jesus's experience under pressure. I want to look at three particular pressure points that Jesus experiences in the garden. And then as we look at how Jesus responds to those pressure points, I just want us to uh, contrast briefly how we might uh, uh, respond to the very same pressures. And so what's the first pressure point we can see Jesus experiencing here? Uh, The first pressure point is the pressure of abandonment. Abandonment, abandonment, betrayal, being left behind, it's, it's all over this passage. It's very central to the story. And uh, along the spectrum 
of human pain, uh, abandonment, and then maybe even worse than abandonment, betrayal, is, I think, the, the most painful relational experience that you can go through in your life. Speaking directly, some of your earliest memories, some of you in this room, some of your earliest memories are having to do with being left in some way. Uh, it, it might have been very young, but it still sticks out to you because of how painful and how much that has marked your life. Others of you may struggle deeply at this point in your life, connecting with people because of some previous betrayal or abandonment that you've experienced. Abandonment is painful, and I think we could go on to say that the more needy you are of that particular person in the moment of abandonment, the more painful that that is. So as a silly illustration, right? Like, let's just say your waiter abandons you. You're at Katarina's, fine Greek restaurant up, up the road here. Go, there's no water to be had. Like, that's frustrating, but instead you went with a spicy number seven so you could match the other people at your table. And you are melting down inside. And the waiter, I'm not saying this, not saying this is a great restaurant, you should go there. Uh, but the, the, the waiter in that moment is nowhere to be found and you desperately need some water, but they've abandoned you. Do you see the, the difference in those moments? Like, when, when you mildly need someone and they abandon you, that's, that's painful. But when you really need someone and they abandon you, that, that can be devastating. Jesus' first pressure point comes from abandonment, not necessarily when he's okay. Jesus is at the absolute darkest hour of his life, the worst moment of his life. And it is in that moment that not just a few people abandon him, everyone is gone. Earlier, he describes in verse 27, he tells the disciples that all of them, every single one will leave him while he is in at the heart of his pain. He says to them, you all will fall away. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. Every one of you will fall away. And they boldly respond, we'll never do that. Peter, if you remember, he emphatically says to Jesus, what? Even if I have to die, I will not leave you. And then as soon as a little bit of pressure of a little slave girl is applied to Peter, if he knows Jesus or not, if he's associated with Jesus, he immediately caves. He immediately caves. What Jesus is saying here is he's going to a dark place the worst experience of his life, and at the very moment when he needs people, um, that's the moment that they abandon him, his closest friends. But if, if that weren't enough, the disciples, it's, won't, they won't even stand with him while he's preparing to go to his darkest hour. That, that's even worse. So Jesus has already said to them earlier at the Last Supper, he's headed to the cross. They're going to abandon him. He's going to a place that no other human being can go. He's going to the cross and he's going on his own. As much as Peter and the other disciples want to, uh, you know, uh, show that they'll be there for him, he's going alone. So Jesus isn't even saying, would you join me on the cross? What he's asking his disciples to do is, uh, as I prepare to head to this dark hour, would you stay up with me? Would you stay awake with me? even to help pre prepare him for the cross, his disciples can't even keep their eyes open. I think of this scenario, okay? Just walk with me through it. Let's, let's imagine, you know, uh, my, my wife is going into labor, okay? We've, we've been in this moment four times before. She's, she's going into labor. It's about to happen, and she recognizes. She's about to undergo an experience that I cannot share with her. Uh, she is going to bring this child to the world. It's going to be very difficult, and, and I can't be there. Uh, to, I cannot go through that experience with her. At the, at the very least, what I can do is be present, provide support, pray for her, 
But just imagine this scenario. She, she wakes up at 2 a.m. It's go time. Get in the car. Let's make this happen. And as I look at the situation and I look at the clock and I'm just thinking to myself, well, yeah, that is going to be a, a really difficult thing you're going through. But just speaking honestly, like it's, it's really late. I've, I've not been sleeping well recently. I'll tell you what, the hospital, it's not even that far. Like you can, you can make it. Um, just just, just drop, call an Uber. If, if not, they can drop you off. And um, I'll tell you what, I'm going to need to be strong tomorrow. So I'll, I'll sleep through the night, okay? Uh, you know, when, when I wake up, um, I'll, I'll get some coffee. If you want some, I can drop some off for you. Maybe 8 or 9 a.m. Let's make it 10 just with traffic. I'll be there for you, and we're going to celebrate. Like, this, this is absurd, right? Like, my wife would recognize, like, you can't go through this experience that I'm about to go through. But at the very least, you, you should be there to support me. And in essence, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're not going to the cross, but can you stay up and pray with me? Can you stay up with me and be with me in my anguish? And they're gone. They're sleeping. He says, could you not stay up with me for just one hour, one watch of the night to pray? And time and time again, he finds them sleeping. The first pressure point Jesus goes through is that of abandonment. Abandonment in his darkest hour. Here's the question that I have for you. What is your response under the pressure of being abandoned? Did you just shut people out? Make yourself say, I don't care about them. I'm just going to shut them out so it doesn't hurt as much. Do you close yourself off to other relationships? You've been through the pain. Do you ponder and fantasize what you would say if you had the opportunity or what you would do if you had the opportunity to see the person who abandoned you, particularly in your darkest hour? I don't know how you respond to that weight of abandonment. I do want you to see what comes out of Jesus under the pressure of abandonment. He says to them, hey, you're all going to leave me. But back in verse 28, he, he essentially says, when this thing's all said and done, I'll see you back in Galilee. I, I'm going to prepare some breakfast, and we're going to pick up our relationship right where we left off. How, how, what, how remarkable is that? That under the, this severe level of abandonment, Jesus looks at the people who are about to walk away from him at his darkest hour and says, hey, I know you're going to leave me. But when this is all said and done, we're going to pick up our relationship right where we left off. I'm going to forgive you, and we're going to resume our relationship again. What comes out from, from Jesus under the pressure of abandonment? Grace. Grace. Giving people what they do not deserve. Not lashing out at them. Uh, not, not letting them feel the weight of the consequences of his abandonment. He simply resumes the relationship back in Galilee after it was all done. Pressure reveals the true um, our Savior. In the, under this first pressure, we see nothing but grace coming from our Savior in the midst of his abandonment. What's the second pressure point we see in this passage? I'll just summarize it as being that of spiritual and emotional. I met Peter Dress, John, and it says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. What Jesus is experiencing in the garden is a level of, maybe you could call it inner, emotional, spiritual weight and intensity that few of us, if any, can fathom. Okay? 
I know speaking personally, I can't say that I've quite been to the level that is being articulated here. I can just remember early on when our church was started, uh, going to the hospital uh, to, to, to greet a mom. She was outside of our church, but had a, had a distant connection to, to be there with her when they gave her the news that, that her adult child had passed away. And in that moment, not to like show like dramatics or theatrics, she literally fell to the ground unable to stand in the weight of that emotional distress. What does it say about Jesus here? It says just a little later, going a little further, he fell on the ground. I've been in environments before where someone gets some news or some information that is so painful, they will literally look up to heaven and say, God, just take me now kill me. The, the weight and the pain of this moment is so intense, I don't even want to live anymore. Just take my life now. What does Jesus say in verse 33? My soul is very sorrowful, not just sad, not just upset. My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death, of death. Jesus in the garden is under an amount of pressure and weight manifesting itself in emotional and spiritual distress that you and I simply cannot fathom. Now, uh, of course, the follow-up question is, is why? We've got to dig into why, why is Jesus experiencing this so deeply at this moment? Because there's been other moments where Jesus has been in hard situations where we've seen very different responses. So, for example, think about uh, the, the moment when he's on the Sea of Galilee on a boat. Everyone is panicked for their lives, falling apart. Jesus stands there as cool and as calm and can be, no problem. Other moments, he's tempted by Satan himself when he was alone in the wilderness for 40 days. No inclination of fear, no inclination of distress. He's strong and stable. So is it that this moment that Jesus is about to face the, the prospect of this? The only challenge with that is you can read accounts throughout church history remarkable accounts where uh, uh, Christians who are under persecution for their faith are faced being burned at the stake. Like, for example, a first century leader named Polycarp, you could read about his account of being burned at the stake in a Roman Colosseum. And yet he, surely under the influence of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless, he walks confidently into his own death for the name of Jesus with no trouble at all. What is it about Jesus that has him so distraught emotionally and spiritually at this moment? What has him so emotionally distraught is the weight that is being transferred to him. Here's what's happening to Jesus in this moment. The burden of every evil thought, every evil deed, every sin you and me and every other sinner, uh, redeemed sinner in the history of the world, all of the sins of God's people are being transferred on to the perfect Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 describes how Jesus literally became sin. He took on in his physical body the weight of every one of your sins, every one of my sins, and every one of... So it's, it's one thing, as fearful as it would be, to answer for your own sins before a holy God. Who can imagine what it would be like to stand before God to answer for not just your sin, but every sin and transgression which was specifically laid on him? The, the pressure... That, that, that pushed him to the ground, the pressure that said he was sorrowful to the point of death is that of the sins of the world coming upon his back, him literally becoming sin for us. Now, I want us to not just look at that pressure 
a look at his response. How did Jesus respond under this intense emotional and spiritual distress? I just find it incredible that even in this moment, he turns to prayer. What comes out of Jesus under this pressure? Prayer. He prays. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't turn to some substance. He looks away from himself, and he prays uh, to, to, to God in that moment. I don't doubt that um, some of you in this room have been through distressing, um, traumatizing experiences in your, in your past before. Maybe some of you feel like you have a dark cloud over your life right now that will not pass. What I want to call you to in that place of distress is the same source of strength, the same source of power that Jesus found in that moment. What's our society going to tell you when you're in a place of deep distress? Maybe they'll say, and deep within yourself is the power to get through this, or maybe run from that situation, or maybe change the circumstances around you. I think what the Bible would say is when you're in a place of deep distress, the solution is not inside of you. The solution is not around you. The solution is above you. Above you. What does Paul say in Philippians 4, 6? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what happens when we turn our anxiety into prayer requests? Paul says, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Do you want peace in your, the distressing moments of your life? Take it to the Lord in prayer. What's the, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus, the, the hymn, uh, are you weak and heavy laden? Take it to the Lord in prayer. Jesus was under intense emotional and spiritual despair, one that no human had ever walked through before, and yet what comes out of him in that moment is reliance on the Father, prayer. Let's look at the third pressure point that Jesus undergoes in this moment. Hard obedience. There are times in our lives when God will certainly call us to do something that is difficult. There are times where everything within us will cry out, no, I'm not doing that. It's too much. It's too costly. It's too uncomfortable. It's too difficult. But hear me. No one will ever face what Jesus faced, or no one will ever be called to do what Jesus was called to do in this hour. The will of God for Jesus in this moment was more difficult than anything we can imagine. Jesus was sent into the world to be a human sacrifice for sin. As we've already mentioned, all of the sins of, of God's people are falling on his son in that moment, and he has to take them to the cross. That is hard obedience. And you see the struggle that Jesus faces here in thir verse 36. He says, Abba, Father, not just Lord or God, the most personal of terms, Abba, Father. Uh, this is the most intimate address you could give him. He says, from the depths of his heart, let this cup pass from me. In other words, what Jesus is about to undergo, uh, he's saying, let it pass from me. Let, let the, the cup of your judgment against the sins of the world pass from over me. Yet, God, what remarkable words. Yet, not what I will. Let your will be done. Stand amazed. In that moment, I don't want to do this. This is the hardest thing you could ask me to do, but at the end of the day, it's not about what I want. 
At the end of the day, it's about your call on my life. So just like we sang earlier, Jesus would say, I surrender all. Is it a cross where I face the judgment of God against sin? I surrender all, not my will, let your will be done. And I I couldn't help but recognize the, the picture of the garden here, I think is significant because what this is being compared to is Adam back in the book of Genesis. But uh, there are some key differences between what Jesus experiences and, of course, what Adam does. Uh, the first one obviously being that Adam, in his moment of obedience, completely fails. He noticed this difference. Adam, similar to you and I, under the best possible circumstances, disobeys God. Jesus, under circumstances that we can't even begin to fathom, still says, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but let your will be be done. Jesus is still submissive even when the world is caving in around him. He, he walks in uh, submission under hard obedience. What comes out of you, though, and me, under the pressure of hard obedience when God is calling us to do something difficult, something hard, something uncomfortable? Jesus, out of him came obedience. What comes out of us? Maybe justification, God couldn't possibly be asking me to do that. And honestly, it's not that bad. Other people do the same thing. I mean, uh, you know, are are we really going to reduce our modern society to these kind of first century standards? Surely Surely God can't be calling me to do that. Is it justification? Is that what comes out of us when he's calling us to obey in a hard place? Is it just deafening our ears? Like just turn away, try not to listen, distract yourself with something else? Maybe a trade? Maybe I know I've done this in my life. God, I, I, I think you're calling me to do this, but I'll tell you what. What if I offer you this instead and we can just call it even? We all, like Adam, try to find a way out from obeying God, even when things aren't even that bad in our life. I think just as, as a point of application, how do we go from these just things, these, um, h- how do we find the spiritual strength to walk in obedience in the hard places of our life. There's one thing to say that we should do it. We know we all should do it. The problem is deeper than that. It's not a know-how. It's a want to. How do we get the inner strength to to walk with God and to obey his word even when it's difficult? I think there's just a side note here that's very helpful. Even in Jesus' darkest hour, he's still instructing, still teaching, still helping his disciples. So what does he say to them? Stay up, watch, and pray with me because the spirit is willing, but the fl- communion with God. Because when we are at a place of hard obedience to our life, if we are not walking closely with the God of the universe, in fellowship, friendship with him, in that moment of hard obedience, God is going to seem really small, and this area of obedience is going to seem really big. But if you are cultivating a prayer life, friendship, like we talked about months ago, fellowship with God. When you hit those moments of hard obedience, they will all of a sudden turn from these heavy burdens, maybe even into a joy. God, I've I've been so amazed by you and so overwhelmed with your love for me as I've sought you that to to sacrifice, to become uncomfortable, to, to give things up that are important to me is actually a joy to you. Where do we find the strength to obey God in the hard places of our life? It comes from our communion with him because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus says, pray, pray that you might not enter into temptation. And just as an aside, one more aside for my aside, uh, you know, the, the point of this sermon is not by and large, hey, there's pressure in our life 
And we need to make sure that, that we're obedient and, and, and good things come out of us in the pressure. That I, I hope that does increasingly happen as we mature and walk closely with God. But, but, but the, the main point here is that all of us fail under pressure. All of us fail under pressure. And the good news is we have a representative. We have Jesus who, not under the best circumstances, under the worst circumstances, he obeyed perfectly on our behalf so that when we fail under pressure on the way to church with our kids screaming or when money is tight or when there's some conflict in your home or when work is difficult, when we fail in those moments, we've got a representative before God who makes us right, who makes us clean before him. And so uh, in your hard areas of obedience, when you disobey under pressure, number one, learn to walk more closely with God so you can find the spiritual strength uh, in those moments. But draw near to Jesus as the one who represented you. Where you fail, he succeeded. And so you never have to fear coming near to God, even when you cave under pressure because someone was successful on your behalf. So it's the garden of pressure, the garden of Gethsemane, the olive press. And in this place of pressure, we see Jesus under the pressure of abandonment, responding with grace, under spiritual and emotional despair, responding with prayer, and under the pressure of hard obedience, he responds with surrender. There's just one final area that I want us to look at together, one final question for us to consider, because I get stirred, but telling picture, I hope it invokes worship in you as you see Jesus under this immense pressure, but why all the pressure in the first place? Why is he going through such tension, such weight, such sorrow? Why this heavy burden of our sin weighing down on Jesus? This is the answer that I'll have us consider as we in a couple minutes get ready for communion. Why all the weight? Our sin created this burden. Yours and my sin created this burden. And someone has to carry it. Someone has to carry it. So many of us, you know, we've been raised in environments or maybe even culturally have, have, have come to understand some characteristics of God that are very appealing to us. We, we love to hear about his love, his compassion, his mercy, his kindness. And make no mistake about it, you cannot overstate all of those attributes about God. They are astounding. But what we fail to often reflect on is that there are other aspects to God's attributes that are perhaps a bit more severe to us. Attributes of his justice, his righteousness, his holiness, uh, from which he is bound to deal with every act of evil that has ever been committed in this world. Our, our sin against God, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like it, but our sin against God is so evil so perverse that God cannot merely shrug it off, sweep it under the rug, or ignore it. Because he's perfect, his perfect character requires a proper response to our sin. And that response is his wrath-filled indignation against every evil act that we have ever done. And it's a short, in the same way that you can throw something up and you can be sure that it will come back down, when we sin in this world, we can be sure there will be a righteous response to that sin. God will deal with that sin. The question is not why the pressure, why the burden. The question is, who will it fall on? This is in closing, what's happening in the Garden of Gethsemane. On the one hand, Jesus can look out at us, you and me, and he sees all of it, right? He sees 
every evil thought, every evil deed, our lies, our lust, our idolatry, our anger, our addictions. He sees all of it. He sees all of it. He looks at it. And then on the other hand, he looks at the perfect holiness of God that can tolerate no sin. And he sees the the wrath, the eternal wrath coming for people like you and me. What's happening at the garden? This is what Jesus says. Not on them. Put it all on me. Put it all on me. When we see Jesus under this torment, sorrowful to the point of death, not being able to stand, it's because he is taking our sin upon his back. He will carry it to the cross. He will pay the penalty for it. He will lie in the grave, lifeless, dead. And then on the third day, Sunday morning, he will rise again so that we can be in eternity, not under his wrath, but under his delight. That's what Jesus has purchased for us. And so at communion this morning, we're going to remember, we're going to remember that Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God, became sin for you and for me. Second Corinthians 5, it says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel in a sentence. And to remember the gospel, let me read what Jesus said just before he went into the garden. His last words before he was betrayed by his closest friends, he says, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus gave us a tangible demonstration for us to rehearse time and time again, week after week, as we get ready for his coming kingdom. We'll sit down with him in the new heavens and the new earth, and we will together partake of the the fruit of the vine like he talks about there. But until then, we find our spiritual strength through, through the week by remembering that Jesus became sin for us and he offered his body up as the sacrifice for our sin. Jesus poured out his, his blood for, to cover our sins, to remove them completely. At the garden, it was all put on his back. At the cross, it was all dispensed. God's wrath was poured out instead of on you, on him. And so I invite you in this meal. If you're in a place in this gathering where you're not there yet, you're not at the place where you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus for your salvation. You've not come to a point of saying, I'm a sinner in need of rescue, of salvation, of grace. I want to urge you to stay in your seats during this time. We do believe that this is a sacred meal that symbolizes those who've put their faith in Jesus. But I just pray and hope this morning that you would begin to see all that Jesus underwent for you. We do not believe that, you know, we, at God, we and God are at odds. We have all these problems in our life. And we need to show a little bit of good faith, like put a couple sins away, like at least show that you're committed, you know, and then, you know, Jesus steps in and helps you. No, no, no. We believe at our absolute worst, at our lowest of low, 
that's when Jesus was sent forth in the world to go through the garden and to go through the cross. So my urge to you is to wait no longer. Like you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything but to confess, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation in your life. Would you redeem me? So can I just pray for us now? Would you bow your heads as we prepare to come to the communion table? Um, Lord, there are maybe people in this room where it's, it's just time as they see Jesus under the weight of their sin, sorrowful to the point of death, pleading that this cup would pass from him, getting ready to go through a death unimaginable to, to our modern eyes and perspective. Lord, we see all of that and say, Jesus, yes, I need that. You did that for me and I surrender my life to you. Pray for the rest of us that we would find our spiritual strength this morning through communion, through fellowship with you. This week, you're calling us to walk with you and to we fade even in hard places. Would you give us the strength for that in this moment? And when we fail, would we rejoice that we've got a representative where we fail under pressure? Jesus was perfect. And so we look to him, not ourselves. Father, thank you for these truths. Please continue to lead us into the depths of Jesus' suffering so that we might fully understand his subsequent glory. In Jesus' name.